everybody says that they invest in the entrepreneurs and not the companies. I don't know that that's true. I think we say a lot of things in investment. I've now gotten 101 no's, so I've heard everything. I, you know, the fact that I've bootstrapped from $49,000 to this year a 32 to $33 million company, I think should tell you something <laughs> in investing in me. Um, it hasn't. So I think that there's more psychology and implicit bias and all kinds of things that are, that are in play here. That's Christina Stemble. She's the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic and is changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. One of the things that drives me crazy about the world of entrepreneurship is the fact that when you look at it from the outside in, the view is far more rosy than it should be. Pick up any one of the many magazines on the subject or check out their social media and you'll see that they celebrate founders and their achievements as some sort of hero's journey. It's all about the struggle, the success, the riches and the prestige it follows. Of course, that happens. But the reality is that narrative is far too simple and there's a lot of marketing in there. My guest today will tell you what a real entrepreneur does and she will share her unvarnished story of how she built her company. Christina Stemble is the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers, a fast-growing floral e-commerce company based in San Francisco that includes sustainability among its core values. She's a self-taught entrepreneur who self-funded her business from her apartment on an investment of $49,000 and has now grown it to over $30 million in revenues. In our discussion, she pulls back the curtain and gives us a dose of reality. She'll tell us how she got the confidence to start her business in the first place in the face of skeptics who questioned her as an outsider to the business and as a person who didn't have a college degree. She will also talk about how she deals with rejection, how she nearly ran out of money as she built her company, and how she fought her way back from the brink of failure and achieved remarkable growth in an extremely challenging industry. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Christina Stemble. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Christina, I like to start the show every week with the same question. And the question I have for you is, what turns you into a FOMO sapiens? It is such a good question. I've thought about this knowing that I was going to have this question. Pressure is on. (laughs) Totally. Um, And the real honest answer is funded people make me have just an insane amount of FOMO, especially companies that are like pre-revenue, that term just like, you know, kind of goes to my head immediately. And I, you know, to see what they're able to do with money (laughs) that I don't have. Um, You know, many people will tell me how lucky I am that I still own, you know, close to 100% of my company and, you know, how great that is and to keep that as long as possible. And they're saying that, you know, from their perch on the cover of Inc. Magazine with their hundreds of millions dollars, you know, large company. And that's possible because they've raised capital And so I don't feel very lucky when, you know, I'm waking up three times in the middle of the night, checking my bank account and being like, ah, trying to figure out cash management. And so I get a lot of FOMO and makes me a FOMO sapien um, when I'm interacting with people that are highly funded and are able to do just amazing things without money. It's interesting because you're right. There is this whole 
media, this whole narrative around companies that have raised money. I call it entrepreneurship porn, Mm -hmm. which is different than porn entrepreneurship, by the way, listeners. Um, But it is something that creates FOMO because you see your, maybe it's a competitor even, you see they just raised $20 million and you're trying to compete and you get scared and it can create a lot of FOMO. You know, am I doing the right thing? And you have chosen uh, a really different path. And and before we get into the whole Mm -hmm. story of Farm Girl Flowers, just tell us what is Farm Girl Flowers? Yeah, so Farm Girl uh, Flowers is an e-commerce direct-to-consumer flower company. So it's similar to the big companies you think of when you need to send flowers to someone that lives in a different location and you don't know what local florists are there. And you also might think of us instead when you want to, you know, use something that's a little bit like more designer, um, you know, when you want to make sure the flowers look are a good representation of you as, as a consumer. So we, and you know, what makes us different than the other companies is that we offer fewer, better options. So instead of having hundreds of options, like all of our competitors have a minimum of 150 options, we offer usually around 16 SKUs, sometimes goes up to around 30 around holidays, but far fewer options. And we don't give consumers the opportunity to pick what the flowers are. So we may have some seasonal offerings where you know they're going to be peonies, but you don't know what varieties they're going to be. And our standard flower arrangements, like our small, medium, large, burlap wrapped bouquet or our vase face babies, you have no idea what flowers are going to be in it. You just know the size, you know how much you're going to spend, and you know that it's going to be beautiful. And that allows us to reduce the waste from about 40% industry standard to less than 1%. Wow. And Christina and I were talking before the show. I actually used to be in the flower industry. In my private equity days, we invested in the flower space. And I know it's a difficult industry because think about it. You're product is dying from the minute you it's already get dead. Involved. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. And so it's not an easy space to be in. You got into this space in a in a very interesting way. So a lot of times in the show we talk to entrepreneurs and we talk about people who started business on the side and maybe went full time later that worked in an industry where they had a lot of experience and, and that's something that we oftentimes I'm an advocate advocate for. You did it a completely different way. You went into an industry where you hadn't worked before. You went full-time. You got to the point where you were down to about $400 in your bank account. So explain, FOMO sapien that you are, (laughs) how you chose this particular way to get into the industry, what the challenges were, and where you are today. Yeah, so I hear you on starting doing the, you know, the 10%, you know, doing the thing on the side while you're still working a job. And I tried to do that. Um, I am that type of person, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I think are always like type A personalities where I make every 40 hour a week job into an 80 hour a week job. And I take on more departments. And so every position that I had, every job I had before this, I made into this 80 hour a week thing. And I would go into that position intentionally thinking I'm going to start this company on the side, not this one per se, but like a company I was thinking about since I had like 4,000 ideas before this. (laughs) And I never did it. I never did it because I'd get home at 10 p.m. and be tired and not work on, you know, that financial model that I needed to do. So I needed to actually have the hard cutoff and not have a paycheck coming in to say, okay, like I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it full force. I'm going to give myself two years or until I run out of this $49,000 of, you know, self like savings that I had in my account and see if it works. And if it doesn't, I'll go back and get a job. And if it does, then it'll be great. And, and, and I, by the way, I, I, I always say, you know, if that's what you want to do, go do it and, and just know what you're getting yourself into. It's a different approach. But for some people, that is the right answer. It's just not, you know, for everybody. So yeah. you had a plan, you had your savings, you were going to go out and do this and you decided to get into the flower industry. 
which is, as I've just talked about, not the easiest place to be. So how did you choose that and how did you figure out how to make a successful business? Yeah. So looking back, I would never start this company again, to be really honest. I love it. I love that we've been able to do this successfully. I love the team that I've built. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to do it really, really well. But when people come to me for advice on starting a similar but different flower company, my first piece of advice is don't do it. Um, The perishability, the overnight shipping, like the rush shipping inbound and outbound. I mean, it is almost impossible to make a dollar. And so why work this hard to make a dollar, you know? (laughs) So, but we're doing it and I'm really, really thankful. But the story wasn't that I grew up like frolicking in my grandmother's garden. I loved the flowers. I knew nothing about it. I taught myself from YouTube how like to process flowers. I knew nothing about the flower industry. I actually thought they were a waste of money. Back in the day, I would send my mom flowers twice a year from one of those traditional e-com companies. And I felt like ripped off every single time. So I was, you know, solving a problem that I actually had myself. I didn't have the pedigree that most people have in Silicon Valley, especially. So I didn't, I don't have a college degree at all, not just business school. I don't have an undergrad degree. I always went in at the bottom at every job that I did and had to work my way up, which has really helped me in Farm Girl because I've learned so many skills from doing that. But I didn't have the traditional, you know, like I, this was my passion and I started this company. And I think as women, we're often like, you know, especially of a creative space, that's the natural story that people think of. I knew I wanted to start a company. I knew I wanted to be able to grow really big. I knew I wanted to actually disrupt an industry and do something different. I didn't want to take somebody else's idea and just do a slight little tweak and then call it my own. I wanted to actually do something really different. If I had like one shot, I wanted to like, you know, aim for the stars. I wanted to go for like the gold, you know? And so most of the ideas I came up with didn't hit all of the things I wanted to do. Or they required millions of dollars of capital. And I knew without the pedigree, there was no way I was going to be able to go be one of those companies that got pre-revenue investment that, you know, trigger word. And for me anyway, trigger. And (laughs) I knew I was going to have to go prove the concept first. And then I thought then I would be able to go raise capital. It has not turned out to be the way that has worked for me, but we've been able to bootstrap it thus far. How do you have, you've identified a challenge, which is, which is something that, I think anybody who starts a business has to deal with, but you're right. A lot of times you see that you get that investment deck from a, an entrepreneur and on page two, there's a picture of their smiling face with the logo of the Harvard or the Wharton or the Stanford underneath and the JP Morgan and the Goldman Sachs and all that sort of stuff. Or tech companies. Or tech too. companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Nowadays mm-hmm. it's more tech Facebook yeah. or Instagram. Yep. And that right there and the networks they acquire in that process kind of smooth the whole thing over. Mm-hmm. How did you get the confidence to say, you know what, I'm coming from a different place, but I can make it too. Yeah. So I've always believed in myself and I think that's really important. People ask like if I've had like mentors in my life or if my family, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. There's not. I grew up on a tiny little farm town in Northern Indiana. Um, I never fit in. I just always knew I was going to be able to do it. And that was enough for me to be able to do it. It, I didn't need validation from other people saying, you know, you're going to be able to do this, you know? And it might not have worked, you know, (laughs) it might have been a big flop and that's okay, but I didn't need that. But on my pitch deck, my about the founder page is the very last page on my deck. And everybody is like, that should be in the front. And I'm like, no, it shouldn't. Because as soon as they see that, that I'm a solo female founder with no co-founders, with no pedigree, with no C-suite, I'm the, you know, CEO, the COO, the CTO, the CMO. I'm all of those things. I have a phenomenal team, but we don't look like any of the companies that people invest in. 
And so I would try to bury it and didn't fool people, but at least it got them through my deck first to see that I have this like, you know, track record of, you know, we've grown at least 50 to hundred percent or over 50 to 300% year over year. And so, you know, I, it didn't help me, but I didn't showcase that as the selling point for my company. Everybody says that they invest in the entrepreneurs and not the companies. I don't know that that's true. I think we say a lot of things in investment. I've now gotten 101 no's, so I've heard everything. I, you know, the fact that I've bootstrapped from $49,000 to this year a 32 to $33 million company, I think should tell you something <laughs> in investing in me. Um, it hasn't. So I think that there's more psychology and implicit bias and all kinds of things that are that are in play here that we could go into great detail and this could be a 10 hour podcast. Yeah, we'll just get out the couch. We can listen <laughs> totally. down. And, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I got rejected 33 times for my first book. And so I, I, I totally understand that. And what it made me feel at the time was, was an imposter syndrome. And it, you know, part of the process of, of, of becoming, I guess I mean, this sounds, now I'm going to sound really woo woo, but like self-actualized is getting over the imposter syndrome. So like, where are you in that process of saying, okay, I made it here. You know, I'm just going to accept the fact I made it and I, and I can own this and maybe one day I want to be in the front of the deck or, or whatever. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is something that I like, I don't fully understand. I think that, you know, I felt very insecure at times, but it was more from the female standpoint, to be honest, it was more about all the negative feedback I was getting about the way I looked or like things like this that have no bearing whatsoever on the way that I do business and run a business. And there were so many negative things coming in that like I started to feel, but it wasn't about my abilities to scale this company. I know I can make this a billion dollar company. I know I'm also might be 80 years old when I get there. <laughs> it might be a very long track, but I know that I can do it. I also understand that other people do not believe I can, but I kind of think it's their issue. Like my dream in life is to go back to those 101 people, which will probably be 200 or 300 by that point, and do my pretty woman moment where I take my check at my exit and I just you know, be like, big mistake, huge mistake, you know, just like Julia Roberts did. Like, I know that we are a good investment. And if you can't see that as an investor, then I kind of think that's on you because I look at your portfolios and your success record and it doesn't look super great. I mean, I have a pretty good success record in the last eight and a half years. So I believe in myself. Yeah, I think that's really critical. And, and the reality is, and you've identified this well, and we've talked about this a bunch on the show, is that people tend to oftentimes investors invest in people that are just like them and they miss out on opportunities. And we had on the last season, uh, Anu Dougal of the Female Founders Fund and her entire thesis is backing female entrepreneurs and that, that those types of funds are coming out. So we're seeing more of that, but there is, there are, there are certain sort of lanes that if you're in that lane, if you went to this school or you have this background, you worked at this company, uh, you, you get a pass in a way that other people don't. Yes. And you have to pattern match, right? I mean, it's just like every industry and we don't pattern match and I get that. So I don't want to say it's only because I'm an unpedigreed solo female founder. It's also because I run a company that isn't software. Yeah. It doesn't have huge margins. It's never going to have huge margins. I also won't lie on financial models. I would rather under promise and over deliver, which is what we do every single year. We come in millions over. <laughs> So that also... That's the retroactive FOMO right there. <laughs> Instead of generating it with the, with the budget and the, and the, and the plan, you, you sort of come in after Well, I fire. have financial models, and, I, and we're going to hit it, and yeah. we're going we're gonna to beat it every single year. Yeah. Where I've seen some of our competitors, you know, what they're saying that they're going to be able to do. And I know that that's not possible. I also know, like, how you're positioning yourself as, like, this tech company that happens to sell flowers and things like that. Like, I think they're, you know, I'm just I'm very honest. I don't want to have to, like 
lie about what we're going to do or what we can do. I want to be able to like tell you, this is how much we can do. This is what our gross margins can be and not oversell what we can do. And then always be catching up, trying to catch up. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. So let's talk about one of the, I think, really interesting parts of your model, which is the simplicity. Because one of the things we talk about a lot of in this show is the idea that people are overwhelmed with choice. And the fact that, you know, whether you walk into, I, I was on Amazon the other day, I wanted to buy just an external hard drive. Um, it's Prime Day uh, when we're taping this. And so I was, I was on the site. There were a thousand choices. And frankly, I found the whole thing overwhelming. Yep. And it made me just not want to buy anything. You, as you have said earlier in the show, really offer a limited selection. So what was the insight that said to you, listen, I want to create a selection that for the consumer is not overwhelming and allows them to choose in a much simpler way? Yeah, so it was kind of by accident that I came up with that as the model. It wasn't really accident. It was just like, it wasn't my number one thing like, oh, this, my aha moment wasn't like, we're going to reduce choice. It was I don't like this problem. I don't like sending my mom flowers. You know, I don't know why flowers cost so much. I don't like the, the options I have available. Let me fix it. And when I went through and laid out all the problems in the industry, I couldn't solve any of them unless I, you know, moved one of the levers. And the only lever that I could move in order to offer higher quality flowers at similar price points, like you can't offer more expensive flowers at the same prices unless you move something. And so the, the, the lever that I moved was the choice. And so... You know, I thought, well, I don't really want to spend an hour of my lunch hour going through 169 options to find the least ugly option, which was usually like an all white bouquet that I would send to my mom. And then it wouldn't be an all white bouquet. It would be dyed color green daisies. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I would rather go and just spend five minutes, have a you know five minute checkout process or it, at the most and just trust that it's going to be beautiful and pick like from a few things. I actually looked at In-N-Out Burger which is like Shake Shack out here. Yeah, we, we don't have that on the East Coast, but I dream that someday it will come. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And it's always like a 30-minute wait every time that you go to In-N-Out Burger. And they have literally like, you know, do you want a single, double, triple? They have a hidden menu, but I didn't even know about that at the time. But just very few things, fries, shake, or soda. And that's it. They don't have, it's the opposite of Burger King that's like, you can have it your way any way you want it. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if that works in burgers, why can't it work in flowers? And so that was kind of my guiding light as a you know, model to base you know, farm girl off of. And that would, allowed me to move the lever so I could not have the 40% waste. And I could take that waste down to under, you know, I, I budgeted for 2%. We've only gone over 1% once ever. 
and that was when we didn't have a cooler, when we, we changed warehouses. So every stem of flowers we buy that comes in in good enough quality to use, we use. Wow. Because we don't tell you, are you going to have this variety of roses or this variety or this tulip or this calla? You don't even, we don't even guarantee it's going to have a tulip or a calla in it. So if all of the tulips come in and they look like crap, which happens all the time, we get credit on it and we sub it with something else instead that looks better. So we can give a higher, you know, better quality product with higher priced flowers at similar price points because we don't waste flowers. So that's the, that really is it. It's that waste factor is the thing. If you're able to reduce that waste, obviously that's just lost money. Yes. Then you are able to basically turn that all into the profits and your competitors aren't doing that. I'm sure some of them try, but you know, it's hard to retroactively adjust your model to do that. So that's your secret sauce. That's our secret sauce. That and not having to spend as much on marketing. Because if we have a better, if we fix the product issue and we have a better product that people actually want, we won't have to constantly acquire new customers over and over again. Yeah. So we spend just a fraction compared to all of our competitors on marketing. Now, one of the things I noticed about your company as well is that you have a pretty robust uh, social media presence. And you know, we've on the show talked a lot about obviously marketing with Instagram and Facebook and these other areas. So how do you, for, for maybe a business owner who is looking at your example and saying, you know, I want to I want to be like this someday. How do you build a massive following for a product like yours? Because I was checking it out, and there's real engagement. It's not that you just yeah. got a bunch of bots. Um, no, you know, we haven't bought overseas, any. From, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, no. exactly. It's it's all real. So, yeah. how did you do that? How long did it take, and what was the process? It took a long time. So we started our social media in 2011. Okay. So I want people to understand it takes a long time to build it if you're going to build it right. Mm-hmm. I highly suggest never buying from fan farms. You're going to be shooting yourself in the foot for the best marketing channel that you could have, which is digital. We also, I should, as an aside, mention that we were extremely lucky to come into digital media marketing at the right time. Yeah. So the auctions were not saturated yet. It used to cost us under a dollar to acquire a customer on Facebook. Wow. Because it was before the big companies had transitioned from traditional marketing channels to digital. So we just lucked out. Now, everybody, if you're looking for like a 25 to 44-year-old female consumer, Good luck. You know, I mean, like, it's like hard. I mean, we do it and we do it pretty well. I mean, it still costs us under $6, which is amazing comparatively, but you have to be really smart about like, okay, we're turning it off on, you know, Black Friday around there. You're not even going to try to go after that $800 acquisition cost and things like that. So, but it's a slow process. It's also, I'm a really, really big believer. This is going to get me some enemies, but not using agencies. Okay. Um, I really believe that it is the best literally five minutes a day that you can spend <laughs> posting a social media picture yourself with your tone. Yeah. You know, we have an amazing team that, you know, is, is working on content all the time and taking pictures and things like that, but it's all internal. Okay. They understand, you know, what makes farm girls special because they're on the inside. So they can communicate that more authentically, which I know is a word that is overused, yes. but it's, it's like one of the worst words. But the real meaning of authenticity, if you can do that, it's because you're doing it yourself. You know, I still post, I would say like 70% of no the way. Yeah, social media posts. I don't answer all the DMs. It got a, a bit overwhelming. I did until probably a year and a half ago. I, you know, it was me and one halftime person helping me answer DMs and all the, the messages. We didn't do a good job because we we're getting hundreds of them a day. So now we have a team that does that, which is great. But I still post the static post. I still post at least at least almost three quarters of the time myself. Christina, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want in life and business and finding the courage to miss out on the rest. So how do you have conviction when it's time to make important decisions? So my goal at Farm World has always been 
to create a company that I would want to buy from, sell to, and work at. And I don't have all the fancy school knowledge, but I know that if I think about whatever issue that I'm encountering with that in mind, it tells me what I need to do. So for instance, I wouldn't want to work at a company that doesn't have insurance. I wouldn't want to work at a company that doesn't have 401k. Yeah. So that tells me that I need to do that for my team, even if it negatively impacts the bottom line. And so, you know, with, with growers as well, I wouldn't want to buy from a company that buys their products from farms that are using child labor to cut the flowers, you know? So every decision I make, even though I think it's, you know, I'm, I do, I'm at a, have the luxury of only thinking about myself as the founder. I don't have, you know, a board that I have to make happy or are these investors for the bottom line, but I get to make decisions with the convictions that I have and values I have personally, because that's how I value my success as if I've created that company that I would want to buy the product and I would want to sell product to, and I would want to work at that company. We live in a world with a lot of choices and, I, and you're making decisions all the time. And so you have this compass that you've just sort of laid out for us, you know, around you'd want to work at the company, buy from the company. That sounds like a great sort of heuristic as you think about the decisions you make, but there's a lot of distraction out there. There's a lot of shiny objects. So how do you kind of miss out as it were on the things that could take you away? You know, for example, all of a sudden tomorrow having 200 different varieties, like how do you, how do you avoid that trap? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I have not avoided it in many occasions. And that is, yeah, and those are the the big oops moments. Those are the ones I look back on. I'm like, I wish I wouldn't have, you know, done that just because we had five people that told me we needed to do it. So Mm -hmm. daily, there are people telling me how to run my company, customers, people that want to be advisors, people just that are like, I see myself in you 20 years, you know, ago, and I want to tell (laughs) you what you're doing wrong, you know, and all these things. And when I go and listen to someone else and I don't listen to my gut and what I, and keep my eye on the ball of what I want to do, you know, like I know, for instance, I'll use an example. So a couple of years ago, on-demand delivery was the thing, right? And I was trying to pitch and trying to raise money and everybody in my space had raised all this money. And I thought we we're going to be out of business in a couple of years, in a couple months, 12 months. I thought I was going to have 20 people without a job at that point. Now it'd be 140, which is stakes get higher. And you know, I went and pitched and I was told you need to do on-demand delivery. Everybody's doing on-demand delivery. We will invest if you can do on-demand delivery. Nobody's going to wait a day to get their flowers. Like that is not the way the world is going. And I went back and I did a financial model, like 16 different ways to try to figure out how to do on-demand delivery and not have to charge. The minimum was $46 locally for delivery to make it work. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 46. I mean, we charge 25 and it's like the biggest complaint we have. And we still subsidized $1.2 million last year in, in shipping, right? So I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And so I went back to that, that, that VC firm I won't mention here in San Francisco. And I said, I can't make it work. Do you have analysts that are way smarter than me that can tell me what I'm doing wrong here? And they said to me, no, that's your job to figure out how to make it work. Come back to us when you do. So I didn't. And my gut was telling me like, on-demand delivery sounds like a nightmare. Having to open in every major city and do the same, replicate the same thing, which is so hard in one city over and over and over again. I can't do that. I'm going to die, you know? And so I didn't do it. And my gut told me the way to scale this company is distribution centers. Those companies are no longer in business. That was, we're doing it that way for a reason, because my financial models didn't lie. 
It, there's no way the unit economics work that way. So I think I'm so grateful that I didn't do that just so I could raise a couple million dollars because we'd probably be out of business right now where I know we need to open distribution centers in a few key places to get to 99% of consumers out there instead of focusing on that 1% that live in major metro areas. And one takeaway I have from this is, hey, advice givers, when you're giving advice, know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like oftentimes we are tempted and it, it's a good thing to give advice and it's, it, the conversations that people have are good. But if you're giving advice with your finger in the air, you know, seeing where the wind is blowing and not based on experience, or you're not taking any time to put yourself in the seat of the person with whom you're speaking, chances are you're going to give them advice that isn't very helpful or could actually lead them astray. So um, that's a great example. And it's like, we, we, we can't figure it out. That's your job. That to me, that's lazy. Yeah. Really lazy. It didn't work. A couple exactly. years later, I'm looking back and I'm like, oh, wow, those companies aren't in business anymore. Glad I didn't do that. Yeah. There's because- other ones I have done, though, so <laughs> I'm going to. That was a good example for me. <laughs> Christina, you can't have it all. So as you build Farm Girl, what are you missing out on? Life, to be really honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work no less than 100 hours a week. A lot of times, 140 hours a week. I sleep a couple hours a night. I put work above everything else, everything I'm not saying this is a pat on the back because it doesn't look good for me. I'm saying it because nobody says what it really is. Like, it is not like, oh, it's a couple of years of really hard work. Like, all the books I read were like, the first two years are so hard. And I'm like, the first two years sound like a cakewalk now looking back on it. Like, if I failed, I could, like, live in my car and, like, whatever. Like, the first two years are scary because you don't know if it, like, if people want what you're selling. But it wasn't scary that 140 people are going to lose their apartments because I can't pay them, you know? So, like... I work harder now at year eight and a half than I ever worked the first year starting out or the second year. So, and it doesn't get better. It's not like it's, oh, there's this like huge, like at year, at the end of the year two, literally I thought, okay, now it's going to get easy because that's everything I read. It's going to get easy now. And it just got harder and harder. So I just want to say really honestly, it is so much hard work. It is so much grind. It is so much, you know, Every time you get through one thing, there's another thing. Unplanned expenses all the time. You know, we had $1.2 million last year in unplanned expenses. That's crazy, right? On a $23 million company last year. That's not chump change. No, and this year we're on track to do almost that much in unplanned expenses. There are, you know, audits constantly. There are new taxes. We just got another tax bill for $90,000 last week we didn't expect. And now we have to budget $20,000 a month, $15,000 to $20,000 a month for this new San Francisco tax. So, like... It's constant. It's all the time. And just when you think, oh, now I'm going to be profitable in this next year and all this, it, it, it isn't. You're not. And so you have to always figure out the, your next move and work just as hard as you did. So what's your secret to staying sane and all that craziness? Uh, my Friday night sleep session. So I sleep like 10 to 12 hours every Friday night. So I'm not a believer that you can't catch up on sleep. We were talking about this this morning. I am just religious about it. So Friday nights, if I only sleep, you know, two hours, three hours a night, four hours is like the max during the week on Friday nights. I catch up. All right. So everybody who knows Christina, do not be calling her no. on Friday night. <laughs> no. She needs to sleep. Yeah. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion and I, I've learned a lot. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, where can our listeners find you and keep up with farm girl? Yes, please come uh, find us on our digital channels that we just talked about. Facebook, Farm Real Flowers, Instagram, Farm Real Flowers, um, and also our website, farmrealflowers.com. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for stopping by the studio. I want to wish you best of luck. And Christina Stemble, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a blast. 
Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is the time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. Today, I want to talk about my summer vacation. This August, I spent a week in one of the few spots left on Earth where thanks to a potent combination of environmental, geographical, cultural, and political factors, basically no FOMO there. This is the land without FOMO, also known as Turkmenistan. You might have heard about Turkmenistan in the past. It's a country where the former president for life, Turkmenbashi, renamed the months of the year after his family members, changed the word for bread so that it was the name of his late mother, built a gold statue of himself that rotated to always face the sun. He was also obsessed with dental care, outlawed smoking, and actually made his dentist his successor. Uh, it's a, a gentleman called Gurbanguly Berdi Mukhamadov. And he was recently on television because he drove his car around a huge flaming pit that's called the Darweza gas crater in order to show people that he was still alive because there were rumors that he was dead. And actually, this footage has made it onto mainstream media, places like John Oliver and Trevor Noah. So if you're curious to see what that looks like, definitely look it up. So while all this is interesting, and Turkmenistan is a really unusual country, it's actually really hard to visit. They supposedly issue less than 10,000 visas a year. I was lucky enough to get one, and I was able to spend some time there. And while while the country is is very different than anywhere I've ever been, one thing that really stuck out to me is the fact that it's very hard to have FOMO because FOMO is basically outlawed. Social media is illegal. It's very difficult to get Wi-Fi, and if you do have Wi-Fi, that Wi-Fi is very slow. And so I talked to some local people who live there, in fact, people who had lived overseas and had experience living in the West and then living in, in Turkmenistan, which is a, a very different environment. And what they told me was what the big difference they see is that when you live in Turkmenistan, you're living in an environment where there just isn't that much information. So you just don't have the ability to get online and compare what's going on in Turkmenistan with other countries to know what's happening in the world. And so it's a very interesting place to spend time. And obviously, I don't endorse the restrictions on personal expression and information. That's clearly an issue. But to spend time there and live in that environment for a week for me was revelatory because I realized spending time away from my devices, just how really tied to them I am. And so coming back, I've tried to preserve the lessons that I learned in Turkmenistan here in the States, in New York City. And so far, I found I've actually spent a lot less time on my devices. So this is something I've been thinking about. You don't have to go to Turkmenistan to have a better relationship with your devices. We'll be talking about a lot this season. But uh, if you do get a chance to check it out, I'd love to hear what your experience was like. Turkmenistan is a beautiful country, and I hope that some of you get a chance to visit it someday soon. FOMO. 
Big news. You can now pre-order my upcoming book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO Sapiens. While you're there, make sure to download my free gift for you, the FOMO Sapiens Handbook, which is an exclusive guide to spotting and managing FOMO and even turning it into a force for good. And as always, if you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, you can reach me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, or on email at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz to find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. <laughs>